ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. What should we make of President Joe Biden's foreign policy? That's this week on Foreign Policy Playlist. I'm Laura Rossbrow-Tellum. On today's show, we wanted to share a conversation FP Editor-in-Chief Ravi Agrawal had with Senator Bernie Sanders' foreign policy advisor, Matthew Duss. He shares what he makes of Biden so far. This was originally a video interview on FP Live, which is available to FP subscribers. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to FP Live, Foreign Policy Magazine's Forum for Live Journalism. I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's Editor-in-Chief, and it's my pleasure to be your host for the next 30 minutes. Our guest today is Matt Duss. He's a foreign policy advisor to Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont. I'll bring him on in just a minute. But first, FP Live discussions are where we bring experts and insiders to discuss world affairs. Unlike cable TV, there are no ad breaks. We get to dive deep into the issues. And as you know, it's a perk of your FP subscription to get to ask questions. You've already done that in this instance by writing into FP in advance. I'll bring in your questions soon. Now, we're taping this discussion on June 20th just about six months into the second year of Joe Biden's presidency. When Biden first came to office in January of 2021, he talked about a foreign policy reset after four years of upheaval under Donald Trump and his America First agenda. Since then, the world has continued to reel from the impact of COVID-19. Russia invaded Ukraine in February, and for nearly four months, Vladimir Putin has unleashed a brutal war there. The Western world and NATO countries are more unified than they've ever been in decades, but the rest of the world seems less incentivized to punish Russia. Iran's gotten closer to a nuclear bomb. There's an energy crisis, which means Biden's headed to Saudi Arabia next month. And of course, inflation is soaring. Amid all these historic problems, how does one rate the Biden administration's foreign policy? What have they achieved? Where have they fallen short? Have they differentiated themselves enough from Trump, especially in China? And how will the midterms impact things? To answer all of these questions, let me bring in my guest today. Matt Duss is a foreign policy advisor to Bernie Sanders, an independent senator representing Vermont. Sanders, of course, ran for president in the last two election cycles. Duss is a Ukrainian-American and has worked to formulate Sanders' foreign policy since 2017. He is here today speaking for himself. Welcome to FP Live, Matt. Pleasure to have you on. Thanks, Robbie. Very, very good to be here. 
So I want to start with the Biden administration's response to Russia's war in Ukraine. America's, you know, condemned Russia. It has sanctioned Russia quite heavily. It has come out strongly in support of Ukraine with military aid, humanitarian aid. It's rallied NATO. As I mentioned earlier, it, of course, hasn't been able to rally the entire world. Now, you've you've been fairly critical of the Biden administration in the past um, for good reason. Um, but you've actually applauded, I think, the White House for its restraint and care on this particular issue, on, on how it's handled uh, the war in Ukraine. Um, would you then call this this administration's greatest foreign policy success so far? I don't know if I would I would call it that, but you are right. I, I do think that all things considered, they have been managing a very tough and, and potentially very dangerous, I mean, an already dangerous, of course, um, situation in, in Ukraine, but potentially even more dangerous given the stakes, given the fact that uh, Russia is a nuclear armed state. Um, they have been managing this, I think, fairly well, um, upholding um, a set of very important international principles, um, particularly relating to the, you know, the opposition to to invasion by one state uh, against another, um, while at the same time making clear that there is a ceiling on the level of support and, and intervention the United States is, is willing to participate in. Um, so yeah, given given the various, you know, the obvious uh, possibilities here for, for, for it, it to escalate, um, pretty dangerously, I do think they've done a pretty good job in, you know, marshalling cooperation amongst allies, particularly European allies, um, working as much as possible with regard to the UN and 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 working within, you know, to kind of forge and then help mobilize, I think, a consensus position internationally as much as possible. Um, I think, as you noted, there is, you know, that the, you know, the kind of consensus and cooperation is shared mostly amongst the United States and the trans transatlantic allies, uh, its NATO allies, but not only. I think we saw some good um, cooperation um, from our allies in Asia, you know, um, uh, from Taiwan, from Japan, from South Korea, particularly as regards uh, to transfers of technology um, and, and, and pushing for sanctions on those things which could um, um, help Russia's war effort. Uh, but still, as I have said and, and written in a few pieces, uh, most recently in the New Republic, but also in Foreign Affairs magazine, we still do see a, a considerable amount of skepticism um, with some justification and reason um, from a lot of countries in the global south uh, with regard to, to, you know, the kind of rallying efforts of the United States. And I do think it's worth considering why that persists and what the administration has and has not done to kind of address that. So let's get into that a little bit more. I mean, uh, you know, one of the sort of guiding principles for the Biden administration's foreign policy has been to align democracies against autocracies around the world. Um, and I know you've written about this in the past, but do you think uh, sort of the response, the world's response to the Ukraine crisis shows that that sort of black and white democracy autocracy framing isn't quite working? I think it does in some ways, but I also think it's it's a it's a danger of the rhetorical framing. Um, first, I'll just say that I think that understanding the struggle between democracies and autocracies, or between democracy and authoritarianism, is a very key one. It's one that that my boss, Senator Sanders, has talked about a lot. But I think there is a a very important caveat there, and this is something that Senator Sanders wrote in a piece he, he published on China last year, um, which was to understand that the struggle between democracy and autocracy is happening within states, 
as much as it is happening between states. It is happening within our own democracy. It's happening inside a lot of other democracies that we could name um, in Europe and elsewhere around the world. So understanding the kind of the various contours um, of this struggle for democracy and not simply uh, you know, presenting it as you know, team democracies over here and team autocracies over there, um, because that is not only false, um, it is going to be counterproductive. And I see, I think you see that reflected even in, in the United States' own policies, the, you know, the relationship that we have and we, we are going to and have to have with a lot of uh, very imperfect countries, we'll just put it that way, countries which are not democracies. Um, but I think the, 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 kind of, the kind of tension or the outright hypocrisy uh, becomes so, so stark uh, when when it's being presented in these terms, and I think the, the the effort should be to try to diminish those tensions as much as possible, but also speak with some more nuance about the challenges we actually face and the policies we're pursuing to address them. So you're saying uh, some of the rhetoric is counterproductive and more nuanced. Just expand on that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I, I think recognizing that, listen, the United States has and will continue to work with countries that are authoritarian. I mean, I think the president's own um, and, I, and in some cases that's justified, in some cases I think that's much less justified. I think we should, you know, in, in my view, um, we should be focusing on strengthening democracies. There are areas where we are going to need to work with undemocratic governments, but I think we should look for alternatives as much as possible um, and, and, and keep our relationships with repressive governments at, at, at the lowest possible um, level that we can uh, to achieve uh, what are shared interests, recognizing that those interests do exist. And here, I think the most obvious example would be um, with the United States relationship with Saudi Arabia, with United Arab Emirates. And I think this kind of, you know, this, this warming of relations, this rapprochement with Mohammed bin Salman, which is ongoing right now, is a perfect example of the kind of thing that really, really, you know, creates justified skepticism and frankly disbelief when the United States goes out there and presents this as a struggle between democracy and autocracy, because we are working with two of the worst autocracies in the Middle East. So um, what would you do differently here? Are you then saying it is better not to meet the Saudis or are you saying that the framing needs to change significantly? I would say both of those things. One is, I think, the justification that is being given for the, you know, the, this upcoming meeting and this and this warming of relations between the United States and Saudi Arabia, but and particularly this potential meeting between the president and the crown prince Mohammed bin Salman, is because. We're in an energy crisis. We need the Saudis to pump more oil. That's always the justification, justification that's given. Now, even leaving aside how much of a difference um, Saudi increase in production could make, especially in the short term, uh, to gas prices, and, and I don't diminish that challenge uh, at all. I mean, I, I, I can feel the, the, get the high gas prices as well as anyone can, and there are certainly working Americans who are feeling it bite much, much, much harder than I do, so I don't diminish this challenge at all. But there are other steps the United States could take um, to, if the goal is to bring more oil online, I'm talking here you know, about Iran, I'm talking about Venezuela. Again, these are also repressive governments. Um, but there's an Iran deal that is, you know, that could be had 
Um, my under, you know, my understanding is that it's still, we may still get back into the JCPOA, even though the president was unwilling to delist the Iran Revolutionary Guards Corps. But I do think it's worth noting that is that was the issue um, on which, you know, the, the Iranians insisted. And, and, and we may very well have been already back into the deal and starting to unwind these sanctions and getting Iranian oil back online right now had the United States been willing to do that. Uh, the Biden administration was not. The president himself apparently was opposed um, to that condition. Um, and the same with, with, with Venezuela. I, I think, you know, no one, I don't, certainly no one should defend the Maduro regime, but there's a very intense set of sanctions we've had on Venezuela for a long time. They produced, um, I, I don't think anyone can seriously argue they produced anything like a, a, a good policy outcome. Um, these kinds of heavy sectoral sanctions, you know, often often have a very bad record of producing good, good outcomes. What they do is immiserate populations while actually um, benefiting a very small section of the regime itself. And that's what we've seen in Venezuela. So I think, you know, there are steps that could be taken with both of these countries if we really wanted to bring oil back online. But that would require confronting some very, you know, conservative um, and very um, influential uh, political lobbies in the United States, advocacy organizations and constituencies, which matter. I mean, we are- a Can I push you a little bit on that? So for sure. example, what, what kinds of steps are you referring to either on Iran mm -hmm. or Venezuela? Mm -hmm. No, I would say, you know, with, with Iran, it's, it's, it's very simple, just rejoining the JCPOA, um, getting back into compliance with the, with the nuclear deal um, and, and getting Iran back into compliance with the deal, which would then uh, enable us to begin to unwind uh, some of the sanctions. Um, that the Trump administration placed um, on Iran when it withdrew from the deal. There are several hurdles there, of course. There are several overcome. hurdles. There are hurdles to overcome, no doubt. But I think, you know, this is why so many of us had hoped um, and expected that the that the administration would rejoin the nuclear deal very, very early in the administration rather, rather than waiting, which is what they ultimately did. And I think that's part of why we're in this situation now. Is it your sense, um, and we've sort of touched on a, several topics here from oil to uh, dealing with uh, countries that may not be very democratic uh, to inflation. Mm -hmm. Is it your sense then that the Biden administration is struggling to pursue um, you know, a principled foreign policy? It often speaks of human rights as mm -hmm. well. Um, but but it, th these messages seem to be getting a bit muddled. I think that's right. No, I think they, you know, the president campaigned, I, I think, in a way that I was very encouraged by. I think many, many progressives like myself were encouraged by, I mean, he, he highlighted um, human rights. He made, you know, he said that, you know, under his administration, the United States, that human rights would be back on the foreign policy agenda. And I think those are things that are important to, to progressives. I think they're important to a lot of Americans. Now, that's not to say there are never going to be tensions in with regard to how we pursue these policies, you know, you know, weighing our interests versus values, as is often said. I think there are areas when our, where our interests and values do coincide. I think we should work to find those and expand those, those areas. But I think beyond the rhetorical, at least as I see it, they have struggled to really actualize, um, you know, that in, in their policy. Um, there are a few areas uh, that I could actually point to that have been human rights successes. I think they have been, and you know, I, I guess it's understandable. They've been confronted with, you know, crises after crises, uh, literally since the moment that they took office. Um, 
but I think that's true of a lot of administrations. Um, but I would hope that they would, you know, as as we go on, put a, a bit more effort into, you know, actually, you know, actualizing um, what what human rights on the agenda uh, really means. What does it mean? Well, I would, uh, you know, in, in my view, it's it's you know enforcing U.S. law with regard to arms sales when it comes to repressive governments. Um, you know, we've got we we are partnered with a number of very oppressive governments, particularly in the Middle East. Um, unfortunately, that does not seem to be the way that this this policy is going right now. Um, you know, as you know, I'm, I'm not proposing that we need to just radically immediately shift our relationships with a number of these partners. I think there are steps we can take to right size these relationships. But at the very least, I think we need to think through ways uh, we can do less harm. Um, with the kind of support, whether it's military or political or diplomatic or or economic, that we give to some of these undemocratic, repressive governments um, that 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 don't protect and expand democratic space, but in, in instead shrink it. But what happens then when you deal with countries which um, are sort of on a slippery slope of mm -hmm. becoming more repressive? of weakening human rights over time. And I'm thinking of countries here that, you know, even you in the past have advised promoting diplomatic ties with say Cuba mm -hmm. um, or, or Iran to some extent, um, um, but also countries like say India where human rights yeah. uh, uh, has been on the slide. Mm -hmm. How do you then deal with all of that? And how does it tie into sort of the soaring rhetoric that we often see from leaders, but also yeah. their advisors such as you? Right. Um, it's, a, it's a very good question. I do think there are different measures that the United States can take. Um, there's different ways that we can kind of, you know, different tools in our in the, in the kind of relationships that we have with all of these countries, whether it's the military relationship, the political relationships, the economic relationship. I think there are steps that the United States government can take to support and defend uh, civil society, um, or at least support um, relationships between civil society actors in our countries and other countries. So it's not necessarily just the United States wagging a finger and saying, you must do this or you must not do that. But at the same time, I do think we have considerable leverage and influence um, to say to some of these partner governments, and I mean, there's a whole range of, of you know, governments and states grouped within this category but just to say if you know if you want to have the best relationship that you can have with the united states here are a number of things that we are going to prioritize and if and if you continue down the path of shrinking democratic space and continuing repression whether it's religious repression ethnic repression gender repression then this relationship is not going to be as robust as either of us might want you're listening to foreign policy playlist we'll be right back What's your sense of how to deal with the the fact that America's sort of share of global GDP has declined by mm -hmm. so much over the last 20 mm -hmm. years? It often strikes me when I think of many American leaders who are, you know, mostly much older, Senator Sanders, of course, um, President Biden, uh, uh, all late 70s or older. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a sense of, you know, imagining the world the rest of the world, the global South is as looking at America as if it is the only economic superpower. Mm -hmm. But, right. you know, the reality is for many countries in Asia, many countries in Africa, they increasingly look to China as a place where yeah. they are doing more trade with more business with, and will continue to do so in the future. Um, do you think that we're seeing enough of an acknowledgement of that shift? 
uh, among American foreign policy thinkers? Enough? No. Um, I think old habits die hard. Um, I, I do think a lot of people in the Washington foreign policy space um, and including a lot of the people who've been kind of mentored by those people, um, you know, there are deeply ingrained habits, you know, about America as the ultimate superpower, America as the indispensable nation, America as, you know, the kind of the kind of prime actor um, on the international stage. Um, and I think that's been changing for a long time. I do think it's finally starting to seep more and more into the foreign policy conversation. I think, you know, if you look at some of the ways that the Biden administration has talked about this, there is, I think, an implicit understanding that America's relative share of power is diminishing. That doesn't mean we aren't still very powerful and influential, the United States is. But I do think there is a recognition that you know, ultimately continuing to advance the security and the prosperity of the American people requires um, more of an investment in, you know, an actual rules-based order. I mean, that is a term that is thrown around a lot. Um, and I think there's a good debate of whether that actually exists or how much it exists or or what, what, what its actual nature is. But I do think recognizing as other countries like China, but, but others as well, um, you know, increase their own share of global power, um, that we do have an interest, those of us who, who believe in, you know, a set of human rights and the fact that the idea that people are entitled to dignity and that we want, you know, the, the, you know, the world's uh, interactions to be guided by a set of rules rather than just military power or economic power, um, that it is, it's good to work on and strengthen a set of shared um, understandings and rules and norms that kind of govern those interactions. And now that, you know, that's very, I understand the critic, the criti the criticism would be that's very nice rhetoric, but that's not the way the world works. Um, but I do think we've shown in the past that when we really invest um, in some of those shared understandings that we can do a lot to create a set of norms, even if they're imperfect, even if they're um, often violated, um, you know, j j just that, that, that is a really important goal. So speaking of norms, let me bring us back to Ukraine. And I realize we, we haven't spent enough time on it yet mm -hmm. uh, in this discussion. Um, how do you think the Biden administration can prevent Ukraine from becoming another Syria or Yemen? Mm -hmm. Right. No, I think what they've done now, I mean, I, they've, you know, the president himself, I think, has laid out a pretty good and, and, and clear kind of set of goals for what the United States would like to see. I mean, he wrote a piece in The New York Times just a few weeks ago, um, you know, saying what, what the United States would like to see is a, a democratic and sovereign Ukraine that controls its own territory and that it's not simply being subject to more threats. Um, you know, at the same time, making clear that the United States will not be sending troops. We do not want this to be a war between Russia and NATO. Um, but your question about Syria, I think, is is, is a good one, because that's a comparison I thought about a lot. I think, you know, obviously Syria was different in the sense that it was a, a, a civil war, an internal, you know, eternal, um, an uprising against a regime. Um, and I think that is an important difference um, from, you know, a, a sovereign country defending itself against an invasion. Uh, as we have in, in in Ukraine, but still, I think some of the 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 phenomena that we witnessed in Syria and other and other similar situations, whether it's the proliferation of of weapons, of small arms, um, and larger arms falling into the hands of rebels who who are under less control of of a central authority. Um, the proliferation of those weapons potentially through the region, but then just a grinding conflict. 
um, with no end. And I think those are, I think those concerns are, are very much on the mind of, of the Biden administration and particularly of our European allies, given that this is their yard. Um, so I think they've been very focused on that as well. Does it worry you that support for Ukraine, even in America, will decline later this year, perhaps with the midterms? What kind mm -hmm. of impact do you think domestic politics will have on the ability uh, of the Biden administration to support Ukraine? Well, I think, you know, as in every situation like this, um, as it as the, as as the war goes on, as the fight goes on, the conflict continues, it becomes less newsy. Um, but I, I, I do think at that point, you know, I think the most recent polling that I've seen, I think I think this was European polling, um, but I think a lot of it is reflected in American public opinion as well. Um, there are, you know, there's a constituency that, you know, supports, I mean, I think there's still pretty strong, overwhelming support for Ukraine's right to defend itself, but there's, a, I think, a large plurality, at least according to the polling that I've seen, that says, all right, we need to find ways to end this sooner rather than later, there's a smaller, um, a smaller number um, that, that, that believes, you know, we should just continue supporting this until Russia is defeated, you know, however one defines Russia's defeat. But I do, I am encouraged that I, I think the larger number, um, while believing that we, we should support Ukraine in this fight, says, well, no, we, we need to find opportunities um, to end this war um, sooner rather than later. And I would hope that the Biden administration will take a bit more of a, you know, maybe lean forward on this a bit more. Their rhetoric um, thus far Explain has that. been, well, thus far their rhetoric has been, you know, we're not pushing the Ukrainians. We are kind of letting them take the lead. And I understand that. I mean, it's the Ukrainians who have been invaded. Um, it, it's their country they are defending. Um, and at the same time, um, you know, the, the, the United States and, and our European allies are providing a considerable amount of support um, to Ukraine. Uh, that doesn't mean that we get to be in charge, but it does mean that we have a stake and a, frankly, reasonable expectation of influence on the outcome. And I, and I, and Matt, I am I hearing you make the uh, the Henry Kissinger argument for <laughs> for asking the Ukrainians to be ready to give up some territory? Um, I don't think we'd have to ask them. I think they've shown, you know, if you look at what was agreed or at least what the Ukrainians were offering um, in in Istanbul. Um, among other places. I mean, I think they have shown a clear willingness um, to make some of these hard choices. There was no hard and fast commitment. Um, but I think the question is, you know, if we can all kind of gather around a, you know, a kind of a, a, a reasonable ceasefire agreement, the question is, you know, does it actually end the war or is it just pause um, in preparation for the next round of war? And I think that is the concern a lot of people, including myself, have. Um, there's, I don't have any problem in principle, nor, nor I think should anyone, um, with you know making hard choices um, and and possibly even giving up territory if it actually ends the war. I think the concern again that that I and some others have is it's unclear that that a that Putin would go for such an agreement and b that it would actually accomplish that. But, but on the opposite end of sort of this spectrum of discussions, of course, is um, Emmanuel Macron's uh, mm -hmm. point of view, which he's put forward that, you know, we mustn't humiliate Putin uh, to try and give him an off ramp. Um, how do you sort of do you subscribe to that point of view or do you think um, that goes too far in a sense? I mean, I wouldn't put it that way. I mean, but as a general principle of let's like keep let's continue to work to find the possibility for a negotiated settlement here, 
I think that's the right approach. I mean, I don't necessarily, I mean, I understand the point that Macron is making about humiliation. Um, I don't I don't think one should ever dismiss the, the idea of humiliation um, and honor and pride and the role that it plays um, in, in situations like this, whether it's Russia, whether it's Europe, whether it's any region in the world, all these issues of national honor, honor excuse me, and politics uh, play a role, excuse me, in politics and what's politically possible in terms of a resolution. Um, but ultimately, I don't think it's, you know, pride or humiliation that is going to make up Putin's mind. I think he has told us quite clearly um, up till now what his actual goals are um, and shown us through his actions what he is trying to achieve, even though he has not really achieved that at all. Um, so ultimately, I think that's what I pay more attention to. We're hopscotching around the world here, so I think it's only fitting given the time we have left to discuss China. Um, what's your what's your take on how the Biden administration has approached uh, China so far? I mean, there isn't that much uh, difference between uh, the Trump administration's agenda on China and yeah. the Biden administration's. Yeah. Do you think that's been the right call? I think with again, I think the differences here are rhetorical, and but I think that's important. Um, not only rhetorical, but I do think the president, you know, President Biden and his administration in continuing to make clear that we do not seek conflict, we do not seek a new Cold War, uh, we are seeking to identify areas of potential cooperation, because the bottom line is the United States needs to find ways to cooperate with China on issues such as climate change, on issues such as, you know, global pandemics, um, run down the list. Um, while at the same time making clear we have very, very serious problems with, with um, areas of China, Chinese policy, whether it's, <clears throat> excuse me, industrial policy, industrial espionage, whether it's human rights uh, relating to the Uyghurs, relating to internal repression. Um, but I do think we have examples in the past of where the United States engaged with other great powers, whether it's the Soviet Union or others, you know, that we, we, we raised these concerns and we brought pressure to bear um, on these governments while continuing to negotiate on other things like nuclear non-proliferation or, or other things like that. Um, several newspapers in the last few weeks have begun to sort of call for maybe relaxing uh, mm -hmm. the Trump tariffs on China. Uh, do you agree with those calls? I mean, I think I've not seen, I think, you know, our, our political economic uh, elites are kind of allergic to the idea of tariffs in general. Um, you know, I've not seen much evidence that relaxing those tariffs would make an enormous difference. But, you know, given the, the inflation that we're dealing with, given the, 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 the high costs of everything that Americans are dealing with, um, you know, I, I think there may be some interest in, in, in being seen as trying to do something more to lower costs. But I just I, I don't I can't say that I've seen a lot of evidence that will make a huge difference. How worried should we be about sort of the alliance between Russia and China? I mean, there's a school of thought that, you know, these two countries together sort of expand the nature of their sort of individual threats to America um, when combined. Um, but there's another school of thought that would suggest that Xi Jinping isn't thrilled with how the war in Ukraine has played out um, and probably sees Putin as having made a series of mistakes that are, in a sense, embarrassing to China. Where do you yeah. stand on, on yeah. that divide? Well, I, I, I think, 
in general, it, it, it's it's a goal, uh, a good goal for any country's foreign policy to try to disaggregate our adversaries rather than to unify them. Um, you know, I, but I would definitely, I, I can't imagine that Xi Jinping is looking at um, what, what Russia has done in Ukraine and how this war has gone for Russia and been impressed. <laughs> um, you know, I think he's watched Putin undertake a war um, that was intended to showcase Russian power and has showcased precisely the opposite. It has only showcased the limits um, of Russian power. Um, at the same time, I think it's also given China potentially much, much more influence um, over Russia um, to kind of help backstop some of the economic costs. Um, you know, I would not probably go this far, but one of my colleagues has put it in terms of, you know, Russia is on the path to becoming a vassal state uh, of China. I thought that was a, a notable point, even though I'm not quite there uh, with him on that yet. Um, so, yeah, I think it has probably, you know, given, um, you know, Xi Jinping a bit more caution about what could be waiting should they they conceive of of some you know other precipitous action whether on taiwan or elsewhere to see how quickly the united states and its allies including its asian allies uh could move in response but i think the goal here um should be to avoid uh that situation uh and make clear that that is not something we're seeking and i think that is what that's something the administration has made clear you know my sense is that one of the reactions to uh, sort of the uniting of the West, as it were, uh, to sanction Russia um, is the rise of non-alignment or the return mm. of non-alignment yeah. after right. several decades of, right. of sort of languishing. Um, and in a sense, this has been a long, long, long few months, long few years in the works, uh, maybe yeah. going back to the Iraq war even, where more and more countries in the global South, I think they look at, um, either US-China or now US-Russia, and they see the return of great power tussles and they say, wait a minute, we don't want to have anything to do with this. Mm -hmm. um, do you agree with that assessment that that non-alignment is coming back? And if you do, um, and even if you don't, how do you think America should approach that? I, I do tend to agree with that. I mean, I think the, the options for that over the past 30 years, you know, especially post-Soviet you know, post um, you know, after the end of, of, of the Cold War, when the United States just had enormous unchallenged power, um, you know, the space for that kind of approach was was limited, but I think it is coming back. Um, I, I think the goal of the United States should be to just demonstrate, you know, to try to, first of all, create and strengthen a model that offers a better choice, um, to offer a relationship um, that creates better opportunities. Um, for states and for peoples. Um, and I think that's a big challenge, although I do think at least there is, I think, an acknowledgement on the part of, of some people within the administration um, as relates to the kind of global economic framework that we've been pursuing, that this really needs to change. I would go back to um, the President Biden's speech to Congress. I think it was April of 2021. It was kind of his first big speech to Congress, the kind of mm -hmm. State of the Union style speeches which I think was a really remarkable speech where he essentially declared that the neoliberal era is over. Mm. Um, and I think that is that, you know, you look at some things that have been written over the previous years by National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, I believe in Foreign Policy Magazine, 
um, a very important piece where he essentially said the same thing. Um, that, you know, we've had this kind of global economic order and that was premised on the idea that we're going to have free trade and, you know, we're going to, you know, you know, corporations can can offshore and, and, you know, build factories in these low wage countries and everyone will benefit. And that is not what has happened. Uh, there are certainly some countries and some people that have been lifted out of poverty. That's hugely important. But in general, what we've seen is, you know, a lot of these, this, this approach has empowered elites, it has driven corruption, it has driven economic, uh, excuse me, environmental devastation. Um, and there needs to be a real rethinking of this and, 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 and an approach to building an, a global economic order that actually supports human dignity, that supports real human security and prosperity. And, and here I would, I would point to, you know, it's a point I've made elsewhere that, you know, you know, I think there's a, a pretty strong consensus within Washington now that the people who protested uh, the Iraq war were right. But I think we need to understand that the people who protested the WTO in 1999 and 2000 were also right. Um, I think a lot of this, you know, the ideas and criticisms that were driven by that, you know, kind of anti-corporate globalization movement, the global justice movement, which was, by the way, driven by activists in the global south. It was not a, it was not a movement that originated. And then 9-11 happens and much of that gets overshadowed. That's quite right. I mean, I think this is also I, I think this is a, a point that I raised in my foreign affairs piece. I mean, there was a lot of energy through the, the late 90s into 99 in Seattle and then in 2000 in Washington. Um, around this to say, listen, this, you know, this, this system is being, these laws and rules are being written by corporate and political elites to benefit political elites in these countries. They are not helping the people. We need to rethink this. And you're absolutely right. It was kind of pushed to the side after 9-11 when the global war on terror became the new hotness. But I think we need to revisit this and understand mm -hmm. that so many of the problems that we are still dealing with and so many of the protest movements that have continued to arise, whether it's in the Middle East, um, the Arab awakening, whether it's in the kind of wave of global protests that we saw through late 2019 and early 2020, which included countries in South America, in the Caribbean, Central America, in the Middle East, in, 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 in Asia, all around these very same ideas against corruption, against environmental devastation and for the lack mm -hmm. of opportunity. And so I think this offers, you know, you know, a set of ideas that the United States, in my view, can and should embrace as we are moving into this new era. That's a great point. Um, let me ask you this. Um, the Biden administration has sometimes been criticized for um, rhetoric that doesn't always add up. And, you know, uh, I've seen, for example, that at various points of time, the administration has said that it wants to center um, a foreign policy for the middle class. Um, it wants to align democracies against autocracies. Uh, it wants to center human rights in its foreign policy. And then you get the sense that having repeated these three sort of principles mm -hmm. several times over the last 18 months, that the three actually don't add up. They might mm -hmm. seem like they're similar on paper, um, but in reality, when you look at, say, a visit to Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. um, where essentially you are trying to service the middle class by helping to reduce uh, inflation, um, but then you are mm -hmm. signaling that human rights don't matter that much. Right. Do you think that rhetoric uh, has been a problem for the Biden administration? I think rhetoric, it's been a problem in the sense that it has not been followed with policy. Um, 
you know, and, and again, we can come back to the, the Saudi Arabia visit, which is, I think, the most glaring example. It's not the only one. Um, but yeah, I think that the, I, I think it's important for the United States to stand up for human rights. I mean, that that is something that, that I and I think and a lot of Americans share. Um, but recognizing, as I said earlier in, in the conversation, there are going to be you know, areas and governments, regimes that we work with on, on issues of, of shared concern that do not meet those standards. I think the question is how deep are those relationships and how much are we investing um, in those? Are we, are we continuing to press on human rights or are we just pushing human rights to the side? Um, I mean, another point I'd make here is, you know, the, the Saudi visit, the Saudi rapprochement, whatever term one wants to use is, is being framed in terms of, well, this is a choice for realism over idealism. We are choosing mm. our interests over our values. And I just disagree with that. I do not think um, it is realistic um, to invest in a long-term relationship with a mercurial, corrupt, reckless leader. I, I think we have learned this lesson over and over. We can run down the list of dictators and tyrants the United States has depended on to deliver particular you know, goods, whether it's security or economic, uh, quote unquote, stability, um, and, and the various times where that has gone really bad. Um, I mean, let's also remember, we saw Vladimir Putin as a partner uh, mm -hmm. in the war on terror, when the war on terror was the defining issue uh, of America's global approach, and that has not worked out, obviously. Um, so again, I don't want to pretend that these these are these are easy questions, but I do think we should challenge this claim that what is being done here just makes sense from a purely realist standpoint. Because again, I do not think it's realistic to yoke U.S. Mm. policy uh, to figures like Mohammed bin Salman. Mm. You know, there are obviously many critiques of the Biden administration from the right, and I think what's valuable here is to to get your critique yeah. from the left, uh, mm -hmm. which which is. One we hear less of, to be frank. Yeah. Um, but let me ask you this. Um, if there's one thing you could change with the Biden foreign policy, what would that be? Yeah. I mean, if there's one thing I would, oh. in, I would spend a lot more energy pushing for um, global vaccinations, particularly pushing for the TRIPS waiver at the WTO. Mm -hmm. Again, I think this is something that a lot of, you know, we heard from a lot of Global South activists Um going back to, to late 2020, when, when South Africa and India first offered the, the TRIPS waiver. For those unfamiliar, it's just a waiver of intellectual property relating to vaccines and, and to, to enable countries in the global South access to these technologies, mm -hmm. treatments, testing, building factories, um, and develop capacity, not just to deal with COVID-19, but to, to, to deal with future pandemics, which there will certainly be. Um, I think this is something Senator Sanders and colleagues in Congress pushed very hard for. Um, over a year ago, President Biden and you know, his administration, Trade Representative Catherine Tai, announced that the administration would be supporting this waiver. Um, but over a year later, we have very little to show for it. And I think we've lost a year. Um, but if we really want to show the world that, that America is back, if we really want to show the world, particularly countries in the global south, that a relationship with the United States um, and, 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 a, and a system you know, that the United States helps facilitate is going to be more beneficial to them, I think, aggressively pushing um, for this waiver and, and pushing really hard for just global vaccine access uh, across the board is one of the most important ways to do it. I think still almost mm -hmm. 3 billion people in the world, mostly in the poorest countries in the world, um, have yet to even receive their first dose of vaccine. Um, and I think um, 
pushing for this is, is something very important for the United States to do, not only to show um, the benefits of American leadership, but it's actually in our own security interests uh, to get this done, because the, the, the quicker we can get more people vaccinated, uh, the, the less likely we are to, to deal with these variants that develop when people are unvaccinated. Um, we're almost out of time. Um, I've been channeling some of our viewer questions, especially on Saudi Arabia. Um, but I want to put one from uh, Arnold LJ to you, who mm -hmm. asks, um, what are Senator Sanders's views on North Korea policy? Does he mm -hmm. think, do you think, um, can the US mm -hmm. actually denuclearize North Korea? I mean, I think the senator's views are that diplomacy, you know, we should be willing to sit down um, and, and engage in really a, a aggressive diplomacy with, with every country. He was one of the few people, I think he was actually the only member of the Democratic Caucus who was complimentary of Donald Trump's um, summit with, with, um, with Kim Jong-un, or at least you know, the idea of it. He was not reflexively critical, um, given the fact that North Korea has nuclear weapons. They've been you know, provocatively testing missiles. Um, you know, this is something we need to do not only for our own security, but for our ally South Korea, Japan, and others in that region. Um, but I think the question is less of denuclearization. I think it's peace on the Korean Peninsula. Um, and I think, you know, pushing for a, an agreement that actually ends the war, because let's remember that the Korean War never actually ended. There's just still um, a decades old ceasefire. But I think working to address those root concerns um, in that conflict that, that, you know, give rise to nuclear weapons and that, that contribute um, to North Korea's uh, sense of instability. And again, not, not to, to, to diminish you know, the repressive nature of that government uh, at all. Um, but I think, you know, in, in, in general, he would be supportive of, of really, you know, aggressive American efforts to support, um, a, a, you know, talks between South and North Korea to bring that conflict to a close um, in the hopes that could eventually lead to uh, denuclearization. I have to ask, um, will Senator Sanders run for president again? Um, I am not, you know, the, he has not made a decision on that. Um, so thanks for the question, but I don't have an answer. You know, recently, um, when uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was asked um, whether she supported um, uh, President Biden for a second term, uh, she said, we will have to see, we'll have to wait and see. Do you think that reflects generally the mood um, for the left wing of the party? Um, I'm probably going to not try and characterize the overall mood of the left, I think, you know, where I'm coming from is wanting to be supportive of some of the good things the Biden administration um, is doing and says it wants to do and trying to offer, I think, constructive criticism where, where, where they've fallen short. And that's what, what I'm going to continue to do. And I, that's what I hope a lot of my colleagues will continue to do. That makes a lot of sense. Matt Das, thank you so much. It was great to have you on FP Live. A great pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that's it for our discussion today. Foreign Policy has hundreds of articles analyzing Biden's foreign policy agenda. You can find and read them and much more on Global Affairs, all on foreignpolicy.com. If you like this discussion, take a look at our forthcoming FP Live interviews. We're streaming live from the Brussels Forum next week, where I'll be hosting a panel on a new Marshall Plan for Ukraine. We've got some great guests lined up for that already. Later in July, U.S. Ambassador to NATO, Julian Smith, will be on to discuss the NATO summit. Fiona Hill will also be on to discuss the war in Ukraine and much else. All of that is on foreignpolicy.com backslash live. 
You can also see our partner events on foreignpolicy.com slash events. That's it from me. I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's Editor-in-Chief. Take care and see you soon. That was a conversation from FP Live. Our thanks to Matthew Duss for speaking with FP. That's all for Foreign Policy Playlist. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. This show was produced by Simone Perez, Maria Jimena Aragon, Rob Sachs, and Rosie Julin. I'm Laura Rossbrow-Tellum. Thanks so much for listening. Till next week. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast. Hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.